if you're looking at what our world is like, how it decides who to make predator and who to make prey, there just are more things going on than class. It's just true. It might nevertheless be true that if you give a bunch of people money, that people will be able to organize and defend their own interests in a way that responds to the fact that there is a racially stratified political system. That might be true. I don't know whether it's true or it's not, but I would love for us to try it and find out. But you could believe that without believing the class reductionist thing about what the social problems are in the first place. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. There is virtually nothing on which liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans can agree on these days in the United States. Except for one very ambitious, very far-reaching thesis about the social world. This thesis has two parts. The first is that America will be majority-minority by around 2045, as the United States Census Bureau has long projected. The second is that this is going to lead to huge cultural and political transformations, and in particular that it is likely to give a rising demographic majority to Democrats. But as the share of the American population, which is white and tends to vote for the Republican Party, declines, and the share of the U.S. population, which is non-white and tends to vote for the Democratic Party, increases, that will help Democrats win. I have come to reject both parts of his thesis over the last years. The political thesis is the one that is most obviously wrong and easiest to reject. In the 1960s, Irish Americans were some of the most reliable voters for the Democratic Party. Today, they reliably vote for the Republican Party. So we see that the political allegiance of ethnic groups has often shifted in American politics. Indeed, the main reason why Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 elections is that he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white demographic compared to 2016, among African Americans, among Asian Americans, and particularly among Latinos. And the main reason why Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 45th president of the United States is that he won a majority of the vote by significantly expanding his share of the vote among white voters relative to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Since 2020, we have seen this demographic depolarization accelerate. In some polls, a majority of Latinos now favor Republican rather than the Democratic Party. And in a recent special election, in a very, very heavily Hispanic district in the south of Texas, a Republican was elected. So we simply cannot project out 30 or 40 years into the future and make political assumptions based on demographic trends. It would be a good thing for the United States if Republicans try to build a generally cross-racial working class coalition. And if Democrats want to hold off 
Republicans from returning to the White House in 2024, they need to be able to appeal to white voters as well as non-white ones. But I want to go a step further today because I have started to think that the basic idea that America will be majority-minority is very troubling and is based on very racialist assumptions about how this country works. One part of this is that the basic demographic categories that this country uses unthinkingly are very confused. The fact that somebody who has purely European ancestors, but whose father or grandfather lived in Latin America for a few generations, is a person of color. Whereas somebody from Iraq or Afghanistan is a white person, simply does not make much sense. And more deeply, the idea that people will in any meaningful sense be seen as or behave like people of color because they have one drop of non-white ancestry is an ideological statement, not a sociological description. In reality, we see that there is, as the sociologist Richard Alba has argued, a rapidly expanding sociological mainstream, which includes many mixed-race Americans, many Asian Americans, many Hispanics, and yes, a growing number of African Americans as well. To believe that somebody who has European aristocratic ancestors on one side of a family and Indian Brahmin ancestors on the other side of a family, whose parents are professionals who work in prestigious positions, is in the same natural metaphysical category as somebody growing up in a deeply deprived neighborhood, all of whose ancestors were enslaved, is simply engaging in a form of racialist magical thinking. So yes, the Census Bureau is probably right that by 2045, most Americans will have some ancestor that is not white, according to its criteria. Some ancestor that comes from Latin America or Asia or Africa. But to say that this will make America majority minority or that it will bring about a fundamental transformation of this country's cultural politics is perilously close to some of the conspiracy theories about the Great Replacement which have misshapen our politics in such dangerous ways in the last decades. My guest today is Olufemi Taiwo. Femi is an assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown and the author, among other things, of Reconsidering Reparations and Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. We had a deep philosophical conversation about how to think about class injustice and racial injustice in the United States today, what kind of role history does or should play in informing the best public policy responses to making real progress in the world today, and what role identity should play on the left. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Olufemi Taiwo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
So one of the most interesting strands of your thought and the thing that originally drew my attention to your writing is your idea of elite capture. What do you worry about with elite capture in general and what do you worry about in particular at this moment of discourse, quote unquote, in the United States? So there's a thing that I worry about with the actual phenomenon, the actual thing of elite capture. And then there's a thing that I worry about with maybe the conversation around elite capture or the kind of conversations that I'm jumping into with the term. So the thing that I worry about with elite capture itself, the thing that's happening is there's a kind of path dependency. The longer and the more entrenched elite top-heavy control of social institutions there is, the harder it seems to reverse, barring some kind of weird cataclysm or weird accident of history. And so I think once you start to lose the kinds of institutions that are designed to challenge elite control over everything, you know, unions, strong social movements, those kinds of things, I worry that even increased attention or understanding of social problems just won't do anything. And then there's a worry about the kind of conversation around elite capture, around identity politics, around so-called wokeism and cancel culture. And the thing that I'm worried about there is that people are going to get the impression that the problem with any of those things that I mentioned is that people believe the wrong things or have been swayed by the wrong norms or you know, maybe a slightly more sophisticated version is that we're developing the wrong habits because of social media, all of which I think is broadly speaking true, but those are more effects than cause. The real thing that's happening is the actual institutions where we develop habits, where we refine our ideas, are kind of more and more owned by a very small group of people and responsive to a very small group of people. And I think in and of itself is the problem. And so let's dive a little bit deeper into how that ends up challenging the sort of standard solution we've seen, especially perhaps in university and foundations and corporations to the reckoning of racism that's been going on since 2020. As I understand it, your argument would be that we end up doing a lot of diversity training, we'd end up doing a lot of fretting about whether people of different identity groups can understand each other, which is sort of part and parcel of standpoint epistemology. We end up doing you know, certain forms of formative action to make sure that the boardroom is more diverse, but the sort of fundamental structures of society remain in place. Is that the problem or how can you cash this out for listeners? Yeah, I think that's right. The broad problem is pretty much as you put it, right? The kinds of solutions that occur to us if we think it's that people believe the wrong things or have the wrong habits are interventions that get us to think differently, diversity training, so on and so forth, or maybe even particular kinds of teaching or pedagogy, some of which might be good ideas in and of themselves, but I don't think any of those are going to address the thing that they're being called to address. If you really want, for example, a better culture in universities, I think you need a better university system in a pretty general sense. You know, it's more like the California master plan, which provided 
substantial public funding to allow people to go to school for very cheap, and which naturally brought lots of different people from different backgrounds into the higher education system. It's that kind of intervention that is going to drive the kinds of changes that we're looking for if we're worried about culture, I think. And what are the current interventions designed to do and why do they fail? I think I get a sense of why something like the California Master Plan might be really appealing, but I'm not sure that I yet see from what you're saying what the current sort of framework fails to achieve, if that makes sense. I'm trying to see what the current framework does achieve, right? So what's the output of diversity training in terms of different political outcomes, in terms of meaningfully different social interaction. So in a way, I think what I'm getting at is not just different modes of attacking the problem, but a different understanding of what the problem is in the first place. And so I don't actually think culture war problems that we might have around how people are talking about identity politics, I think those are more often red herrings. You know, people lament polarization, people lament the kinds of discussions that folks have on social media or on talk shows or whatever. But I don't think that's the actual conversation we're having. I don't think that's actually what drives people up a wall. That's just kind of the place we've located the culture war in this particular decade. But I think really there's a sense that people feel powerless and disconnected. And there's a question of who and what to put the blame on. And so these kinds of cultural battles about who gets to play what sport and what gets taught in K through 12 education just offer themselves up as a place to get purchase on those things. But I don't think there's any version of responding to that kind of diagnosis of the problem that would solve the thing that it seems to me that people are worried about. I've been wondering in reading your work, to what extent your concerns are identical or not identical, similar or not similar to what Adolf Reed, a recent guest on this podcast, would call race reductionism. So, you know, to what extent can we summarize the most important takeaway you offer us by saying... We keep thinking exclusively primarily about race and identity when really we should be thinking about economics and social class. How much does that capture and how much important insight does that leave off the table? I mean, I think there's something to that. There's definitely a way that people can talk about race that might distract us from a more complex understanding of what's going on that would include class and economics that's not a particular feature of race discourse. You can talk about anything in a kind of closed-minded way or in a reductive sort of way. And so I think my particular perspective on this has as many bones to pick with class reductionism as it has with race reductionism. So I wouldn't describe the takeaway of this book as an attack on race reductionism in particular. Maybe it would be better to just describe it as an attack on reductionism. So let's see the flip side of it, which is to say, I think we've heard some of your concerns earlier in this conversation about what happens when you 
try to solve the current problems the United States has through at least one particular kind of race reductionist framework. You know, you think diversity trainings and flies about microaggressions are going to solve problems on a campus that actually can only be solved from deeper change like the master plan for California. What about the flip side of it? If you say, hey, look, this is all about class. And as long as we sort of elect the 2016 version of Bernie to caricature a little bit and just give lots of nice European style welfare state benefits to poorer people, all these other problems are going to go away. That perhaps would be a form of class reductionism. There's more and less radical versions of it. What would that get wrong, both about the current state of America and how to fix what's wrong with the current state of America? As far as like particular things that you could do, I think that version of class reductionism has a lot more going for it than most other versions of class reductions. If you're a class reductionist about what we should do to respond to the problems, you know, maybe that would get us somewhere, right? Just give people a bunch of money, give people free health care, et cetera, et cetera, and the rest will sort itself out. I don't think that's true, but I think it's worth pointing out the differences between a kind of class reductionism about how we should respond to social problems versus a class reductionism about what those social problems are in the first place. I think a lot of people move back and forth between those two kinds of class reductionism, and they're really different, at least to me. It just isn't true that mass incarceration is purely a problem of class. Has a lot more to do with class than people give it credit for. Like the way that poor white people are policed is maybe not as different from the way that poor people of color are policed as people might guess. But it is different. It's measurably different. There's libraries of social science explaining why it's different. It just isn't true that the problem of toxic waste and environmental racism is entirely explained by class, more entirely explained by the level of income of residents. Again, there are measurable relationships between the demographics of a community and zoning decisions about deciding of this or that industrial pollution, et cetera, et cetera. If you're looking at what our world is like, how it decides who to make predator and who to make prey. There just are more things going on than class. It's just true. It might nevertheless be true that if you give a bunch of people money, that people will be able to organize and defend their own interests in a way that responds to the fact that there's a racially stratified political system. That might be true. I don't know whether it's true or it's not, but I would love for us to try it and find out. But you could believe that without believing the class reductionist thing about what the social problems are in the first place. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, personally, I find that in the United States, discourse tends to be in important ways race reductionist, that all kinds of things which obviously have a class component are seen exclusively through lens of race. And that's even true of social science studies where people don't control in some important context for social class and then see a correlation between two things and put it down entirely to race. And clearly one part of the effect is driven by social class. And then, you know, I go to France, whose political discourse I think is much more subtle, much more interesting than the American view of it sometimes is. But I think in similar ways to the United States, it then tends to engage in class reductionism. It tends to see 
everything through the perspective of class to the exclusion of important ways in which race drives some of this. And again, if you just look at an independent variable as an explanatory variable that is class-based and you don't control for race at all, a bunch of the effect that race is having is just going to travel through your class variable. And again, you will think that the correlation between these two things is a little bit stronger than it actually is. I mean, this is sort of a random interpretive question, but like, do humans, including philosophers and including social scientists and sophisticated thinkers about the world, just have trouble letting go of one master narrative? Are we just wired to want to see the world for one prism? You know, why is it that we end up with these discourses in which we always want to explain everything through one lens? As the saying goes, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it seems to me that in so much of intellectual life, it ends up being true. And I guess I'm a little bit puzzled as to why that's the case. I don't think we're hardwired in any sense. I don't think we're looking at nature. And part of the reason why I don't think we're looking at nature is because there have been eras where there was a much different relationship between these various narratives. This is something that isn't talked about so much these days, but in the decades following the Second World War, there were a host of national independence movements in the Third World, as political actors named themselves in that time period. And a lot of those folks were very flexibly moving between talk about race, talk about class, talk about gender, even in the United States, especially those who saw themselves in solidarity with international movements. There just have been, as a matter of fact, historical eras and epochs where people seemed willing to accept or respond to, in friendly ways, different overlapping narratives about what the world was like, what was wrong with it, and what to do about it. And I think what we're seeing in our time period that we're living through is not the effect of some human deep-seated inability to move between and accept the different narratives of the world, but a manufactured scarcity and competition between political narratives. Part of the manufacture of that has to do with the way that the platforms that we talk on have been constructed. I think the better part of the explanation of that has to do with the kind of, you know, austerity moment that we're living in, where there's fewer and fewer parts of the economy where people can experience anything like economic security, which fosters a sense of competition between the people who have resources and the people that don't. And I think those are the things that we should look at if we're trying to explain why people talk about politics or many other things in the ways that they do. So I certainly used the wrong word in saying hardwired. I obviously think that in this conversation, we're not doing that. And there's lots of people who don't do this all of the time. So I don't mean that it's inescapable in that kind of way. I guess what I meant is that there may be a tendency towards it because there's deep temptations which speak to deep parts of our nature. You know, here's a parallel I've sometimes wondered about, and it may be overdrawn. You know, I fought a lot, in part because of the history of my own grandparents, about why so many people were drawn to communism and why so many people were drawn to making excuses for the real existing socialist regimes in Eastern Europe for a very long time. 
as to varying extents within limits, but in real ways, my grandparents did. And I found the explanation, which is partially Tsesov Milos' explanation of a captive mind, quite convincing that there was an intoxication in being able to tell people that you figured it all out, right? There was an intoxication in being able to waltz into any conversation and saying, well, you're talking about this novel or this social question or this political question in whatever complicated, messy terms that people talk about the world in. But actually, that's all wrong. I have a vocabulary that I've learned, which is the vocabulary of a certain form of orthodox Marxism. And that tells you that this is all about class in a particular kind of way. And not only does that make me feel like part of an important transhistorical movement for justice, so my life is meaning because for I'm a foot soldier in this large movement, it is the defining movement of the history of the world. But also, I get to lord it over you a little bit, right? I don't actually have to think all that hard. I just have to learn this set of phrases once. And there's some real study involved, right? It's kind of complicated. But once I've mastered it, I can go in and say, hey, you're an idiot. I know what this is all about. It's all about class and class relations in this particular kind of way, right? And it seems to me like some of our intellectual class today suffers from the same temptation, right? You can learn a set of ideas and a set of phrases which are associated, as you put it, in quotation marks with wokeism or whatever we want to call it. And you can waltz into any conversation and say, well, this is about white privilege and microaggressions and uh, da, 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 da. And it sort of allows you both to feel like part of an important transhistorical movement and that, you know, you go to go into a conversation where people are discussing other terms and say, you all are idiots. I'll tell you what this is real about without having to think all that hard. So, I guess I'm really speculating here. Do you think there's something to that parallel? And if there is, what explains that parallel? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a few kinds of temptation going on. I agree that people want to be able to feel like they understand something and potentially to lord that over people. They want to feel like they're part of something. And I think they also don't want to feel like they don't understand right? Complexity is daunting and it's humbling in ways that not everybody accepts. I'm coming around to why you said hardwired, because I think find me a generation of people and I'll, you know, I'll find you a generation where those desires are pushing at us, maybe in different ways, you know, maybe responding to different history. But I think those temptations are going to be with us. What's interestingly different to me about what's happening now is not those desires, but kind of the relative absence of the kinds of checks on those desires. So 50 decades ago, if you wanted to have the perspective that communism has figured out everything, our intellectuals have the master narrative, they have the explanation of what's good and what's bad, and they have created the kind of real movement, which is the singularly most important movement in history, and it's a movement for justice, if you had that perspective, you would be pushed by the same kinds of desires that explain why people like master narratives. But one of the things you would have had to do is respond to a bunch of people saying, well, here's what the Soviet Union is actually doing, or here's what Mao's up to, or here's what's happening in Albania. And you would have to position yourself in response to that. You may do that in a healthy and honest way and with integrity. You might fail to do that. 
But those are things that you would have to answer. And not just answer in an interpersonal way, but there were real geopolitical stakes to your answers to those questions, right? There was intense state competition in the era of the Cold War between first world aligned nations and second world aligned nations and third world aligned nations. And you weren't just talking about your identity, you were talking in a real way about your position in a global struggle. Now, in the age of the so-called end of history, maybe we won't want to describe it that way anymore, but so that's no longer the geopolitical situation. And in the United States, it's no longer the domestic political situation either. There's a kind of hegemony of capitalism as the actual master narrative, regardless of whether we give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, the, the actual thing that explains what happens in our lives. There's a functional hegemony of the core U.S. political institutions, military, national security. You know, there's people who, again, give those institutions a thumbs down, but those institutions do not fear that they will not exist in a few years. And so it just means a different thing to have any kind of opinion on political matters, master narrative or not. It means a different thing in that context to succumb to those desires because there isn't any real political situation or set of institutions forcing you to have a come-to-Jesus moment about whether those desires really should be directing your behavior. There's none of the breaks or constraints that there might have been in particular other eras, or less of them, maybe I should say. I agree with much of that description that there was a kind of overt ideological competition during the second half of the 20th century, as well as in the decades before when fascism was still a real player in many countries, not just as a brute political force, but as something which laid a claim to the allegiance of many ordinary people and many intellectuals. And that has sort of gone out of a window with the delegitimation of communist regimes first and then their formal collapse in the early 1990s. And that, after all, is what Fukuyama actually means by the end of history, just that absence of ideological competition is precisely at the core of his thought in the end of history. And I think in a certain kind of way, uh, he's still right. I have an essay that I published on the 30th anniversary of his essay, in which I say that Fukuyama was probably too sanguine about the ability of liberal democracies to sustain the allegiance of their own citizens. But at the same time, he was absolutely right that there would not be for at least a long while a real ideological competitor to liberal democracy. And I don't think there is today. There are real world competitors, which you always foresaw, but you know, neither the Chinese political system, which, as I like to quip, you know, works relatively well in practice, but is a mess in theory, you know, so it can't easily be exported anywhere else unless you happen to have the old communist party that's really turned into a kind of technocratic regime lying around that you can somehow use. You know, there's the theocratic regime of Iran, which may have some appeal in other countries that are predominantly not even Muslim, but Shia, that's not going to be exported beyond that. And so the ideological competition is sort of gone. I guess I am nevertheless more worried about the stability of at least some parts of our constitutional settlement than you are. And the reason for that is the way in which authoritarian populists are able to affect a change of political regime form without having to do that openly. 
without having to advertise that. So I think what people like Donald Trump and Viktor Orban, but in a different way also Hugo Chavez, are up to is to say, hey, we're going to build a real democracy. The current elites are holding us back from having really democratic institutions. So we're going to go in and sweep those anti-democratic elites aside and really make this a democracy. But because we're also anti-pluralist, because we're also unwilling to accept legitimate political opposition, because we're also unwilling to accept the need for independent institutions like courts or free press, they effectively attempt to, and in some cases succeed in, building a dictatorship of a new kind. And so I agree with you that that isn't exactly on the plane of a kind of ideological competition that existed before 1989 and that Fukuyama had in mind. But I suppose you can actually get radical political instability and a real move away from the core institutions we used to without having to have that kind of ideological competition. So I guess I'd love to hear your response to that. Yeah, I think we're both worried about that. I guess I might just contextualize it differently in my own head. So there is a worry that the way that some particularly geopolitically influential states might go or have went, Turkey, the U.S., might go in the direction of a kind of authoritarianism that wraps itself in the clothes of liberal democracy and that installs itself while wearing those clothes. As I see it, the danger isn't that we'll enter a new era where that will happen, but the danger is that that thing which we've seen before will continue. So what you're describing to me sounds much like how many historians might describe late 19th century U.S. I think the era of banana republics was a little more brazen. And there's, of course, the complications of the U.S. and multinational companies as kind of outside actors. But you might say there's a long history where there's occasionally some voting happening. And I think you and I would probably agree. So maybe to just put it shortly, I too am worried about the way that things might go and the way that authoritarianism might install itself. I just don't think it has much to do with, you know, whether or not there's kind of a unique historical crisis with liberal democracy. I think the crisis is more general geopolitical, especially as climate crisis kind of upsets the balance of power between corporations and the rest of us and between various states and the state system. I want to talk a little bit about the subject of your book, which is reparations. There is a kind of philosophical rationale for reparations, which actually is not especially controversial, which even libertarian philosophers like Robert Nozick would get on board with. So to sketch his theory in the very broadest and most simplistic terms, he thinks that justice consists of justice in acquisition, justice in transfer, and then the principle of rectification, right? So as long as you acquire property in some legitimate way, for example, in the perhaps a little bit caricatural world by, you know, going to some plot of land that nobody is using in any real way and just starting to farm on that. But it hasn't historically actually been how a colonization of the United States works, but let's use that as an example. And then as long as there's justice in transfer, as long as you decide to buy or sell plots of land without somebody sticking a gun in your face and making you do that, 
that continues to be perfectly appropriate. So everybody has whatever holdings they have and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason to worry about it. But if at some point along the line, that wasn't the case. If I actually did go and steal somebody's land that they're already using, or if I did force somebody to sign this contract by the threat of violence, then the principle of rectification comes into play and they should be compensated for that injustice. So there's a way of trying to use that very basic conceptual framework at a more collective scale to get to a justification for something like reparations for slavery, which obviously involved forcing people to do productive activities for the benefits of others in ways that are evidently unjust, which evidently violate the principle of justice and acquisition and justice and transfer. And so, boom, you have a kind of libertarian justification for reparations. How exactly that works in the details is obviously really complicated, but the moral force of it is relatively straightforward. I take it that you have a case for reparations which really rejects that model, which says that's not the way to think about it. So talk us through both why you think reparations are important and why that sort of relatively straightforward justification of the need for them is wrong. So I actually quite like Nozick's view, you know, relative to lots of the other views on offer. So perhaps let's start with what views do you like even less and then we can get to. <laughs> so I like Rawls's view on this list. I think in general, the good thing about Nozick's view is that it's historical and it's process-based, right? So how did you get it? What does the fact that you have it now have to do with what happened to this before, whether we're talking about acres of land or, you know, something else. So all that is nice. And it's a cool, basic, conceptual framework. If you want a rhetorical justification for reparations, it's a great tool. There's some people that prefer to use Locke's view of reparations, but I think Nozick's is actually better. If this is what you want, if what you want to say is there's a philosophical view out there that's plausible that explains why reparations should happen. But imagine actually believing Nozick's view. So believing that the justice of somebody's holdings, the stuff they have, depends in an important way on the facts and status of how those holdings were acquired. And now say you have a view of history that's anything like mine. So a view of history where the thing that you mentioned about how the U.S. actually was colonized is foregrounded rather than backgrounded. A view of history where the fact that we have a planet-sized social system and the process of creating that planet-sized social and economic system just was colonialism and slavery on a planetary scale. Now imagine trying to apply Nozick's theory in general and not just to the issue of reparations. It would be difficult to say from that vantage point which holdings are justified, including the holdings of the people who presumably should be getting reparations. So, you know, I think as a kind of rhetorical device, Nozick's way of thinking about it is nice, but it seems like, if you really buy the theory, you should be thinking that the idea that anybody has just holdings is probably not going to work. You tell any historically serious story of how anybody owns anything, and you're telling a story that runs into some injustice. And so I think you need a different way of 
framing the basic issues if you're going to want to say what reparations is and what it should accomplish. So I call the view, I prefer the constructive view, and it basically just starts from the historical points I just mentioned. So if we're talking about slavery and colonialism, we're talking about the construction process that built this world, which explains who has what stuff, both good stuff like wealth and bad stuff like pollution. And so the right way to think about reparations for that is to build something else that will distribute the costs and benefits of that construction process in a way that responds to yesterday's injustice. So talk me through that in a little bit more detail. I get the criticism of Nozick. It does seem as though if you actually take seriously the history of the world, there are such complications in who acquired what, how, and there are such complications or straightforward violations of justice in how various pieces of property were transferred, that you end up in a situation where just applying those principles, you're sort of like, well, we have to rectify everything here, right? Like nothing is neat. And so, you know, Nozick actually gets you to an explanation for why a lot of the current world is unjust, interestingly, but it then becomes very difficult to know what the next steps are. And famously, Nozick didn't go very far in developing what rectificatory justice would actually look like in detail. I'm trying to think through whether the paradigm shift to suggest of thinking about the world from this constructive view gives us with much more clarity about what to do. Now, it might give us a general sense of there's people who've been really ill-treated in history and we kind of owe them stuff. But when we're thinking about what kind of climate policy should we adopt, should we stick with capitalist institutions, what kind of tax regime should we have, right up a whole bunch of concrete, important questions about how to run the world, it's not clear to me how central those questions should be because the most important question, for example, is how do we ensure that rising nations like India or like Kenya or like Nigeria have a prosperous future? How do we make sure that people in those countries have the ability that at the moment an important number of people within them does, but a minority within them, to get a quality education, to develop their human potential, to build an affluent and dignified life? And the recognition that those deep injustices in the past certainly seems relevant, but it does not seem dispository about what to do. And in fact, I'm guessing, I don't know, we haven't discussed it, but we probably have slightly different views about the likelihood that a set of broadly speaking capitalist institutions is going to be able to help countries to accomplish that kind of development. And whatever our particular views, it seems to me like that's the right question to ask, right? If it turns out that keeping up a version, not identically, certainly, but a version of global capitalist institutions is, in fact, the thing that's going to allow India or Kenya to develop the best in the next 50 years, that seems like a pretty dispositive reason to do that. If it doesn't, then that seems like a pretty dispositive reason not to do that. So in thinking about the policies that the government of India should adopt, or for that matter, the World Bank should adopt, or for that matter, the United States should adopt, how central should those historical considerations be? And to what extent are we just actually back in the good old-fashioned land of disagreements about economic theory and the impact of different kinds of economic institutions? I agree with much of that. So maybe the helpful thing to say first would be to answer the kind of initial question you posed. Accepting this view of reparations doesn't tell you much about 
what particular world we should be trying to build, right? It tells you that we should be trying to build a world that is just, and it tells you that its success at being just will depend on responding in the right sort of way to yesterday's injustice and building tomorrow's justice in the right sort of way. It tells you all that, but it doesn't tell you what institutions will get the job done. And part of the point of my developing this view was to say exactly that, right? I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of scholarship that I think implicitly has a kind of rules-based, you know, deontological, if you like, but a principle-based approach to racial justice that says, you know, well, we know for a fact that there was injustice in the past and responses to that are due. And that just doesn't look into the consequentialist question of will this or that response actually change in the world? And I'm opposing that, among other things. It has to be part of your view that doing this or that will actually adjust what the world is like in the direction of justice. The point of reparations at very least needs to be to actually improve the lives of the people who are owed them. Yes, absolutely. Right. So getting that done requires paying attention to empirical and geopolitical realities in a way that is important. I think from there, getting to the other things you're asking me about, I suspect that we may have different kinds of guesses about what institutions will be helpful to African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans or Kenyans or Nigerians or whatever. But I think we at least agree that it would have to be helpful, right, to fit into this picture of reparations. It has to be true of whatever interventions we go for, that they will make life and the world better. Right. But I guess the question is, how much of what we should do actually turns on possible disagreements we might have about the nature of reparations or the urgency of them or whatever else, and how much of a disagreement just turns on, well, what policy and what intervention is actually going to help? And I guess I wonder whether, you know, the topic of reparations, if it really got political traction, could just turn into another field of a culture war, right? So I'm not at all instinctively opposed to reparations, I think, for reasons partially to do with the theory by Nozick I outlined, partially to do with the theory that you outlined, there's at least an intuitive case for them. What I worry about is, one, whether it's possible to implement them in a way that, you know, is politically sustainable and B, actually helps people. And I wonder whether, you know, the really important question is, do we get our economic policies right? Do we get the basic setup of national and global institutions right? And that's going to determine, for example, how people in formerly colonized countries are going to fare in the next 25 or 50 years. If I were to guess the average well-being of people in India or Kenya 50 years from now, I would say figuring out what the right institutions are, which allow them the kind of economic development that China has managed to sustain, as opposed to the lack of economic development that some other countries have suffered, that's a million-dollar question. And then whether or not there's some form of reparation just seems like it's going to determine much less of the well-being and non-well-being of people in those countries 50 years from now relative to that. So I think I'm getting a clearer sense of what you're asking about now. Let me start with the last bit. All the action is happening in the word right. What's the right economic policy? 
you could see a view about reparations as an attempt to say, what are we trying to do by way of refining economic policies? I think there is a broader politically fleshed out version of that where we're trying to build economies of solidarity and self-determination and worlds of solidarity and self-determination, which increasing income certainly contributes to, but does not exhaust. I'll leave that there. But not even the technocratic version is, in my view, plausibly read as a goal of our current institutions, whether it's aid from rich countries, whether it's the operations of the World Bank or the IMF or the WTO. Don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of honest people, individuals in those institutions who really want to make things better for people. But is the goal of the World Bank to increase the quality of life for Kenyans, even in the narrow economic sense? There's just no plausible sense in which it is. We all, like, for reasons of politeness, you know, sit down in these groups and pretend like it is because that's what their fucking reports say. But no one believes that, right? Nobody believes that. It isn't true. So in that sense, at the very least, you know, that basic definitional sense of what the goal of any of this stuff even is, refining our economic and political institutions, reparations would be meaningfully politically different from the status quo, even if it's just because improving the lives and political conditions of Black and indigenous formerly colonized people becomes an actual goal of the system, which it currently is not, currently plainly is not. And then on top of all that, I think, you know, the other thing that we have to consider is the connection between that point and the earlier points that you raised, right? It will be a culture war to get reparations passed, not because reparations, the word reparations, or even, you know, the particular conceptual moves on the terrain of world history or whatever are intellectually anathema to the world, but because people actually just don't want to help other people. Because the political elites in the rich countries of the world don't have as one of their goals making Kenyans' lives better or making, you know, Trinidadian lives better or even making the Black populations of their own countries' lives better. That's the source of opposition. And so once you've taken a political stance that is trying to do that, it doesn't really matter what you call it. There's going to be political opposition. A lot of times people ask me this question, you know, well, if you ask for reparations, you ask for racial justice, won't that be unpopular? It's like, yes, because people don't want it. That's just built into the nature of political struggle. And it's one thing to understand real limitations as to what you can actually achieve. But it's another thing to build those limitations into what you want to achieve. Maybe we can't win in this generation, this or that particular political demand. But that isn't a reason not to want it anymore. So that makes sense. And that speaks to your thoughts about the nature of political struggle as a multi-generational enterprise. That the moral arc of the universe is so long that we should think of ourselves in many ways as the ancestors of those who might succeed. But how do you think about building a political coalition that is capable of getting some of those important measures passed, whether it's today, whether it's over time? 
I realize that's not primarily your job as a philosopher, but how do you think about what the political language might be, what the political rhetoric might be, what the form of political coalition might be that will be capable of moving the world towards adopting policies that will make it more just? One of the ways that I think about building coalitions and partnerships and alliances is by thinking about the kinds of contingencies that come up when you're talking about something on the scale of world building. We could build the world in different ways, and some of those ways might narrowly serve some particular interests, and some of those ways might narrowly serve another set of political interests, you know, if we were imagining it in black and white, to use suggestive terminology. We could build the world in a way that would 100% help out Black folks. We could at least conceive of doing that, and we could conceive of building the world in a way that would 100% or close to extremely help out white folks, or remember. But there's all kinds of other options in between those extremes. And I think the work of coalition building is to find a way of building institutions, goals, and political structures that harmonize your goals with the goals of others. The institution of a union is a not only a historically good example of this, but I think a conceptually good example of this, right? We could each individually go and try to win the best individual contract that we want by sitting down with the boss and saying, I would like this much pay and this many benefits. Some of us would do better than others. Or we could make a thing that allows us to bargain together, bargain collectively, and all do better. It's not as though there aren't differences between us. It's not as though we all become perfect people that perfectly live in community or that experience perfect levels of altruism. But it's that we actually make it the case by building a certain kind of political institution that what's in your interests is in my interests. That's not something that was built into the structure of political reality. That's not something that was the only way that we could have come together in a union. You know, just ask people in company unions, right? But it is a particular way of organizing ourselves together. It is a particular political possibility that we bring into existence by forming a union. And that's the kind of thing that I think is going to work in general. It might not always be a union. It might be some other kind of coalition. It might be some other kind of social movement. But you have to actually make it true that your interests and other people's interests align. It's not required for that that everybody benefits the exact same way or to the exact same extent. All that's required is that there's a connection between what's good for you and what's good for me. And we can actually build that. We can make that the case and not just try to react to the particular incentives that are already built into the world as we find. I mean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 